I love the part about being an architect where you get to become a mini expert on whatever you're designing. And research is always a part of every project and school offers like a really unique opportunity to dive in deep, way deeper than you probably will on most projects. And I really enjoy the way you discover things through it. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to Architecting. Hi, welcome to Architecting. I'm Elijah Wagner. Here with my dad, Adam Wagner. Hey, Dad, who's on the podcast today? <laughs> yeah, thanks, Eli. Yeah, uh, on the show today is uh, a panel with uh, your mom and some others. But I'll keep this intro short. There's an, already an intro in the live recording itself. But if you want to see any of the images that the presenters showed... You can see them at our website at architect-ing.com. Thanks. Enjoy. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. This is our annual Coffee with an Architect. Basically, it's time for you to ask whatever questions you might have of an architect as uh, you're going into that. Or if you want to landscape or planning, you'll be working with architects. So, whatever questions you might have, they'll be able to guarantee. All right. Thanks, Adam. Well, yeah, yeah. So, uh, welcome to this uh, architect. Uh, what is it called? Coffee with an architect event. Uh, thanks to yeah, CU Boulder here and uh, AIAS Boulder, uh, and to Brandon for for bringing us in. Um, yeah, I'm Adam Wagner. Uh, so I'm. Uh, co-founder of Vessel Office of Architecture in Denver, and uh, I teach at CU uh, Denver uh, Architecture. Um, yeah, and, and two and a half years ago, I started this podcast uh, with the goal of really to just tell the stories of like local Colorado architects uh, and to help build and kind of foster community within our state. Uh, so yeah, I, I I appreciate it when Brandon invited me in last year. Uh, Brandon, episode 16, um, uh, invited me in last year to talk here. And uh, and it was actually the first, I think, live event that I, I did kind of coming out of COVID. And that's really just what I like to do. I like to talk about architects, architecture with architects. I like it a lot, and that's what I do a lot. Uh, but it's fun to be you know among other people who care as as well kind of out of that Zoom bubble that we were in for so long. So uh, yeah, so today we've got a great a great panel here. Uh, like Brandon said, they know everything. Uh, they got all the experience. Um, so some some that I've uh, interviewed before, some that I've, I've wanted to interview, um, and some that I'm married to and wouldn't come on the podcast unless they got put on this panel. That's the only <laughs> way I could get her onto this panel, onto the podcast. Um, so they're each um, leaders in local firms. Uh, so we have Rebecca Wagner of Ginsler, Mike Piche of Studio B, uh, Tana Anderson of Live Studio, and Mike Michael M. Moore of Trace Birds. Um, and I re I really hate like the kind of standard introductions that you get of like kind of reading off website bios. So uh, I'm going to let each of them introduce themselves, but because of our, our venue here, I'm doing it a little bit differently. So it's, it's the same sort of format that we did last year, if you were here, but each guest will have uh, five minutes and 10 slides to talk about a student project that they did a long time ago, uh, and then talk about a present professional project that they've done, and then kind of talk about that journey in between of how they got there. From there, we'll kind of have a little bit of a panel discussion but then looking for questions from you guys and really just opening it up to hear what questions, uh, what other questions there are. And then after that, you know, the more ambitious students should, should run up to their favorite panelists right away and try to figure out how to get a job or something like that. And yeah, so I think we'll, we'll turn it over. So we're going to start with the only uh, CU Boulder grad on the panel. So we're gonna start with Mike Piche and then go with Rebecca and Tana and in with the other mic here. So, thank you. Thank, thanks, panel, for being on. <laughs> All right, well, well, thank you, guys. Um, 
Yeah, my name is Mike Pache. I am principal with Studio B Architecture and Interiors. If you guys are not familiar with us, we have design studios located here both in, in Aspen and in Boulder. There are six talented people in the Boulder studio. We have eight in the Aspen studio. We have one actually in New York City, and we have one located in Santa Cruz, California. I direct the Boulder Studio. We studio. We opened about seven years ago. The firm was established originally in 1991 by Scott Lindenau. I'm a local architect. I grew up in Boulder. I went to the University of Colorado in the environmental design program and went to the university for my master's in architecture. And it's certainly a nice honor to be able to talk with you guys today. But I've been in Boulder a long time. Remember when, when CU was super good at football. So. <laughs> Yeah, so looking back to the time when I was in school, this was, was pretty interesting. Um, my undergraduate education was really just before the computer had take, taken off. So most of our drawings were produced by hand. All the models were produced by hand. And really how to be in kind of working with the computer was really just not that clear at that, at that time. So this project was my, my very first studio assignment. You know, I was an architectural student at CU, and my, my instructor was guy named Michael Falwell who's on here. And looking back to the time when I was in school, this was, was pretty interesting. Um, my undergraduate education was really just before the computer had take, taken off. So most of our drawings were produced by hand. All the models were produced by hand. And really how to be in kind of working with the computer was really just not that clear at that, at that time. So this project was my, my very first studio assignment. You know, I was an architectural student at CU and my, my instructor was a guy named Michael Falwell, who's on here, and I'm lucky enough to still collaborate with him at Studio B some 20 years later. So it's kind of amazing how some of those connections you make early on end up translating and going forward. So the, the brief for this project was to design a research tower stationed in Antarctica where the effects of ozone depletion can be studied. The final tower design interprets the concepts of sky, destruction, ground, water, and the mending into form those form those concepts into form and spatial arrangement. We explored many versions of the final design with quick gestural physical models, and you can see those at the bottom, with some of the final photos of the completed work at, at the top. The iteration and exploration on this product uh, this project was very tactile for me, and I felt like I learned to begin thinking with my hands. Some 20 years later, I've worked on a number of projects, including houses, schools, churches, offices, and a wide variety of project types, and you know, I'm lucky to work in a variety of places such as Colorado, Africa, Hawaii, and Michigan. The Blur House is one of my favorites. This is a project that's located out at, on 40 acres in the foothills above Boulder. The owners were art consultants with two children. They wanted a simple, functional, modern home with a strong connection to the outdoors. Burr by Day is a silhouette, a dark floating bar, a metallic cloak wrapped around a bright, light-filled home. By night, it's a series of warm golden bands projected onto the hillside. The architecture is a lens designed to focus on the landscape and the intimate interactions with the family within. During the design process, we crafted numerous diagrammatic study models with each one trying to create a very simple, clear parti. None of these are precious, but are used for dialogue, critique, and quick iteration. The smallest of these were 132nd, and the largest were a very detailed one quarter inch scale. The beauty of the initial small models is that they are devoid of unnecessary detail, and the ensis of the product can be, can be edited. They can help make future decisions more rational, and this additional element helps support the concept. The project represents our interpretation of a modernist Colorado mountain house by incorporating simplicity and restraint. The large sliding doors from the dining, kitchen, and living room areas extend to a floating stairs with a subtle nod to the legendary Mies van der Rohe. The integrity of the plan and detailing reflect the modernist ideas of minimalism and functionality. Core elements on the upper and lower levels contain the private and functional program, while the circulation at the perimeter extends to the views. Additionally, the nearly symmetrical upper floor plan creates a, accommodates the couple and their two children, while providing flexibility to the house and to host intimate gatherings. The exterior palette of the Blur House is made of simple flush metal panels raw form concrete, and charred wood siding. The glossy metal facade reflects the surrounding landscape, colors, tones, while staying durable. 
fire resistant and countering the harsh mountain environment. The panels reflect the light in a really great way as you walk around the project. In the fall, they appear yellow, and with the leaves, they turn blue and blue with the sky. The entry doubles as a gallery space with concrete walls and an open stair filtering right from above. Concrete acts as a design element and also provides the lateral bracing for the structure. Simple interior finishes focus attention to the large amounts of glass, creating a visual connection to the bolder mountain landscapes. The concrete floors are durable and extend from the exterior while the softer wood treads bring you to the living portions of the, the house above. In contrast to the exterior, the interior remains soft and inviting with an uncomplicated palette of white and wood floors. The success is attributed to the balance of minimalism and functionality. Orientation of the living views in both directions, kids have playful desks aligned with views, and even the master bathroom contains a connection to the views and to the natural light. At Studio B, we are known for modern design and simple, clear diagrams. Our process is dependent on iteration, editing, and restraint. While some projects use diagrams, sketches, or narratives to define a party or design concept, I think the model works really well for us. And here are for a few shots of just some projects in the works. Thank you. You know, I was telling Mike uh, before that uh, when I moved here, I reached out to him for a job and he did respond. Like that's better than most people. Uh, but I didn't get the job, but it's just a thing of, of not giving up. You know, it only takes seven years to, to meet some of your heroes here <laughs> and you just have to start a podcast and invite them on to things. Uh, no, but, but seriously, like I, I started this podcast to, to be able to talk with uh, people that I admired. And, and so I'm, I'm glad uh, Mike, Mike came on and shared this. But um, what, so you want to talk a second about like uh, sort of how, how, how those two projects relate, how that first project what sort of grew from that and and formed into this this project here, the Blur House? Yeah, I think I think one of the aspects that I was kind of hinting at is really begin to, I think think with think with my hands. You know, so much when you're working in architecture too is just getting a point of where you start and begin. And and for me, I think working with models is a really excellent way for me to kind of get out ideas. It's um, a nice part where you can just kind of mass, somehow it ends up being really, um, in a way, relaxing for me to do that as long as, like we talked about, not exacto blading your, your, yourself, but, <laughs> yeah. and you know, I think when you're using something like this, that's pretty, pretty small and very kind of gestural, again, that you're really able to do something pretty, pretty small, clear, and communicate that idea, not only to either as clients or other people within your firm, so you can get a good good response back, back from them. Right, yeah. I mean, it seemed like with your school project, it was it was uh, exploring all these different kind of site context sort of things, but in a kind of more formal way, and then you're, you're doing a lot of the same things with the Blur House, but in a more restrained way. Yeah, and I think over, over time, you know, definitely that, that restraint and that more simple approach we're just trying to convey that the one idea ended up being more more powerful and more resonating with me you know I, and it's probably the same with a, a lot of people too when you're like young and early on there's a lot of a lot of different ideas and a lot of different moments and you're trying to cram a lot of stuff into a into a project where i think editing and editing and, and editing kind of you know refine it oh we'll just do just the bar floating and if we can pull that off, then that's a pretty, pretty successful project. You know, there's like so many different kind of layers that you'll go through on any, on any project, whether it's just the client, you're kind of dealing with the, the budget or you're dealing with permanent tendencies and all the different kind of um, aspects of people who, I guess, shareholders who are take part in a project that having that one idea kind of resonate and be clear in the end is, is something we strive for. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, the hardest. Yeah. Great, thanks. Uh, yeah, so the next guest we have on is uh, Rebecca Wagner. So, like I said, uh, she was supposed to be the very first episode of Architecting, and we started recording it, and she was like, this is boring, I don't want to do this. And <laughs> she uh, hasn't been on uh, since. I guess she, she does sort of introductions uh, with, with each most each podcast, but... Uh, 
Yes, it was great, actually, uh, not that I was like playing favorites or something, but I think AIAS requested she be on here, so it's not just me playing favorites. Uh, but she is my favorite architect in Colorado. Just barely beat out the two mics. But, uh, no, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and I didn't give much of an introduction myself because she'll kind of introduce both of us, but take it away. Thanks. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Rebecca Wagner, and I grew up in Colorado Springs, and then did a five-year master's degree at Kansas State University. And then after two years of running a firm with Adam right out of school, having no idea what we were doing, um, I decided to go back, <laughs> back to school and I got into a graduate school in the Netherlands. So we moved abroad to the Netherlands for two years. And then after that, we moved to the East Coast uh, where Adam went to Yale and I worked for uh, an architect named Cesar Pelli. And then we both moved down to Mexico City and worked for Tatiana Bilbao for a little while before landing back in Denver about six and a half years ago. And I've been uh, with Gensler since then. And Gensler is one of the big, big ones. Um, I think the biggest architecture only firm in the world. But the Denver office is just about 100 people. So uh, this was the graduate school in the Netherlands called TU Delft. Um, this space was designed by a Dutch firm called MVRDV. The whole building was like a playground for architects. They, they uh, have a huge school, like 3,000 architecture students. It's, it's really amazing, but it was um, really fun. It, I went there to get new perspective, a different approach to architecture design, and ironically ended up spending an entire year thesis studying the Midwest of the United States. Um, so we spent the first semester developing a 300 page research book uh, studying the Midwest, why it was losing relevance despite its resources, kind of some deep dives on energy and landscape and infrastructure, not actually a ton of architecture for an entire semester. But we did end up with these really big kind of uh, proposals out of this that were part of this master plan for the whole of the Midwest, including uh, returning most of the Great Plains to rhyming bison, growing corn in skyscrapers or corn scrapers, and some algae remediation, floating ponds for all the rivers, um, things like that. And then the second semester, we dove into a specific uh, intervention of the master plan, and I designed a transit hub for St. Louis, but similar to the research, it was really looking at bigger systems and flows and potential for closing the loop on some of those systems. So it, it turned into a transit hub with a produce processing plant where the anaerobic digestion can power the, the heat and power for the station itself. And then jump about four, four or five years later, I had the opportunity to work on another version of a transit hub. This is the Eagle County Regional Airport. It's just west of Vail. And they were in need of a new six-gate concourse addition to their existing terminal there. Um, it lands in this amazing valley between the mountains and these um, chalky cliffs to the north, where they actually mine gypsum from. It's in gypsum, Colorado. But the concept for this building really stemmed from the vernacular of these local rural barns that we see throughout um, the mountains and this really interesting section that they all had, we called it the modified shed, and how we could use that section to complement the existing um, terminal structure, but help try and push that um, mountain aesthetic into a more contemporary version. So we worked really hard to keep that same simple section, kind of that whole length of this terminal. Uh, we let the section kind of shift where there was a main circulation point and then let it grow where you have the, the concessions and you need a little bit more volume for that space. But keeping that really clean, simple section and clean, simple ceiling proved to be very, very challenging. Um, and I made this little 3D diagram to kind of help illustrate all the different things that we had to coordinate and think about in order to protect and create something clean, which seems like the easy thing to do. But we had to you know, really carefully coordinate where we could put the, the fire penetration lines through the steel. Um, we had 
to coordinate where the speakers and the um, sprinklers and the lights were landing in the wood ceiling itself while on that angle. We did a little custom metal shroud cap to end the, the wood ceiling and then uplight the wood. And we had to keep this little two inch reveal between our structural steel and the finish of our wall because that was actually the return plenum for the air. And then all the mechanical systems were supplied through the wall instead of through the ceiling in order to help keep that a, a smaller profile. So it was a, a never ending battle to keep that really clean aesthetic. Um, the interior palette was pretty restrained. We used exposed polished concrete floors, the maple ceiling, and then expressed the steel connections. Um, as part of the kind of the craft. And we worked really closely with the graphics team, which was also part of Gensler, to make sure that the signage felt like it was part of the architecture, not just tacked on things later. And then we also were able to work with a local ranch that helped design and fabricate some of the furniture and benches to bring in some of that, lo the local craft um, of the region. So uh, this has been really well, um, well appreciated, it really transformed the passenger experience here, and I hope it's a, a nice um, contextual, relevant airport compared to some of those like big austere airports. So, mm -hmm. thanks. Thanks. I give you like a hint of some of the questions I might ask you in the car, okay. but what, how, how do you feel like these two projects relate beyond just transit mm -hmm. center? Yeah, other than the literal program. Um, I, I love the part about being an architect where you get to become a mini expert on whatever you're designing. And research is always a part of every project and school offers like a really unique opportunity to dive in deep, way deeper than you probably will on most projects and um, really explore that research field. But you always discover such fun things out of the research phase and um, with with the Eagle Airport, it was, you know, on a much smaller scale, but every kind of issue we ran into, there was there was a research phase and a an evaluation and then a kind of unexpected conclusion that came out of it. So um, I don't know, I just I really enjoy the research part and the way it, it you discover things through it. Cool. Did you say rhyming Buffalo before? Roaming. OK, that would be <laughs> really innovative. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right, now we have Tana Anderson. So again, episode 16, if you want to know her whole life story. Uh, but uh, yeah, take it away. So I am Tana Anderson and with Live Studio and um, understanding Live Studio is a smaller firm, but basing everything on uh, the idea of serving others through design. That's really what we... Um, we are intentionally small and intentionally focused on um, the client and the client relationship. So going back to my school is kind of interesting because I actually started down the path of interior design. Um, that's really where I wanted to focus and thought that was my intentional de design degree. And I quickly realized that um, while it was very great for my uh, practical, my pragmatic mind, my eight type, um, it really missed the sensibility that I was lacking. And um, so I went through architecture for the theory and felt like that was a really, um, I needed both of those two things to help me um, be, be who I am. I feel like um, through that, I've realized that, you know, through my storyline, I think we have a lot of varying projects and a lot of project types, but it's really, um, it comes down to humanity and humanity's strive um, and seeking community that's really become part. So how that plays out in materials or patterns, but really um, how that translates and impacts socially, environmentally, economically, um, just the impact that we have as architects and designers. And um, so we have to sensitively use art and technology, which is something we, we didn't have when we were going to school. That was not really something we focused on. So it's been something that's been growing and gives a, a great opportunity now of how you sensitively apply that. But basically, um, just realizing that architecture is really creating community. So one of the ways that um, this is examined through is through the Denver Central Market. It is really about um, the existing sort of structure that was there 
and um, the palette using the neighborhood that was there, um, but then creating this interpretation and adaptive reuse about how we make that some a place, because that wasn't long ago that you didn't want to be in that neighborhood necessarily. And so it's really bringing in, but it's also breaking down the walls of um, the economic and the, the age discrepancies. I mean, you can see all types of people there and it's really a great um, piece. I think one of the things about the Denver Central Market that I love so much is that when it was first published, um, they noted that it was in this great neighborhood, it was an existing building and there was existing flooring. Well, that's actually not true. The flooring is something we put in. And it's such a compliment to know that um, what we can put in as architects and designers, that it can feel so sensual to the space and really complement what's happening for now and before. So then Concourse um, really talks about technology and how to, how to respond to that sensitively. You know, we do have this opportunity now that um, technology gives us that we can really um, use the resources that are around us, but by using the materials that are that are inherent, that are common, that are um, relatable, that um, we're able to create a soft and create the mood with lighting as well. And then we can use technology, technology to really give a bold move. So this is um, Corner Beat, it's, uh, it was in Cherry Creek, and it really gives a pop, there's a high energy, and we're using that technology there um, as a new way. People, um, they, they would go into the space and kind of question, like, how did that, how did that work? How did they actually create that, um, the texture that's on the wall? And so it was this idea of subtraction. So I think that that's one thing that, um, as, as Mike here mentioned, yeah, it's not always about adding, it's about what you can subtract to the space to really complement and make it a subtle space. Um, and then this is um, Greenlight Lab. This was a project that was um, close to us. Uh, we were the clients, so it is always a little bit uh, tricky when that's the case. Um, but it was created for community. I think it was intentionally we intentionally made it to be a community space of exploration. So it is using technology and asking, how can we use this? How, what can we do different? Using commonplace materials, what can we do? And we were constantly rotating. It was about supporting the community um, in, in the ways of we were giving back. Um, we were um, constantly trying. We were teaching new things to our clients. We have a lot of clients that are restaurant owners, and a lot of them are chefs. They've never actually owned a restaurant, and they didn't understand all the, the actual tactile pieces of owning a restaurant. And so this was an exciting way for us to use um, different ways of exploring. But I think it was really about um, asking questions, exploring why, why not? And you just made some really good cocktails. We, yeah. Yes. Which now we still do, oh, but nice, it's yeah. a different location, our house. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this was Livestrong Foundation. It's um, down in Austin. And this is, again, an adaptive reuse. I think it's something um, that we really believe in. Uh, you know, architecture can have a lot of waste. It can be have a major impact on the environment. So how can you take a building that is existing and really use what it was and see it for the future. And so with Livestrong, one of the things that we did was we um, took this, the roof and put sawtooth skylights in. And all of the wood that was uh, removed, we used uh, in creating these spaces in the interior portion of the, of the space. So um, my encouragement to you is to travel, to explore, to do, to sketch. I, as you can see that art is a really important part. So this is some of the work that I did in, in college and I think it's really about like using those materials, kind of making a relationship with them and seeing how we can uh, interpret those for, for now. Nice, thank you. What, what were some of those, and maybe you kind of already answered this, but what were some of those kind of major like theories within architecture that, that propelled you kind of into this uh, realm that you're working in now? I, I think it was the idea of materials. I think that that has played a major part in what we've done and um, kind of making it relatable to the user. I think that there's a lot of... Um, a lot of times that you come in and you don't understand exactly the sensibility of a space, but it really comes comes to the things, the materials that you're coming in contact with. So keeping it simple, you don't necessarily have to add, you can take away, but it is really this idea of um, what are people coming in contact with. Did you and, and Mike, uh, Michael uh, uh, plan that? I think that's probably a good transition <laughs> to going nice. into. Salt's there we go. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, so we have we have Michael and Moore here. Uh, uh, what, what were you? Episode uh, forty three. Episode forty three. Uh, a good talk. And I'm I'm really curious what he's going to say here because we talked a lot on the podcast about uh, your thesis, which was seemed like you getting up at like five in the morning, four in the morning, six days a week, reading hundreds of books, and then just somehow getting into Peter Zumther's living room and talking with him and then going to a bunch of Swiss projects for six months. I don't know if that's what we're going to talk about, but I, no, I hope it is, but <laughs> maybe next year, but okay. All right, cool. Thanks you guys for coming. Uh, so this is an assignment uh, in Studio 4 a long time ago, 1998. And the assignment was to make a pinhole camera. And I wanted to uh, pursue a multi-exposure device, so it could have multiple exposures. Um, these are my hand drawings of it. Uh, section, we'll go back. Section plan, section elevation. Um, an object found me. Uh, I started by making and uh, concept drawings, order, datum, composition materials, all. Uh, considered during this active drawing. Uh, I daily took the bus. I lived in Boulder. I took the bus to Denver to go to my master's. And um, on my, my walk from the bus station to the school, I'd walk by this really sad uh, circuit breaker that was busted off of its post and had some wires. It was dangling. Out. It was just sad. Um, and so, uh, you know, most days I'd notice it, it, it would definitely bother me. Uh, and so I, I clipped it off and was like, could I, could I incorporate, could I make this panel camera like this as the base? It was, it was actually very tough to work with. <laughs> I had a lot of things that didn't work about this, mostly light getting into it, <laughs> got raw film in there and everything, but I, uh, but it was really like, could, could you make something functional out of like a total piece of shit? So this is one of the images of four that it took. And this is actually an image of the site where I took the circuit. I believe in the spirit of place. I liked the idea of regionalism. Um, I was exploring how to make things that are connected to their site. I like the idea of making something useful out of something discarded with no perceived value. Um, objects, spaces, experience emerged out of the process of thinking, researching, experimenting, making, failing, discovering. Um, the project was a result of these acts. Uh, the process was critical to creating something new and something connected to the site and program specific. So this is like, this is, yeah, so this is the, you know, studio review. So drawings suspended in those frames, and you can see my models kind of marching along these hand drawings I showed you at the beginning and the front. You know, just like made a space. Yeah, so final presentation. I attempted to visually describe the process and the resultant experience of the project. I tried many craft techniques for the first time. Color sublimation on mylar, spring-loaded display frames, material-to-material uh, -material connections, express structure, uh, embedding the site into every step of the process. Uh, the project was received with melancholy on the day that I had this up. Uh, however, uh, I learned to trust the process, uh, I, and I got a glimpse of how, why one might invent in architecture. So this is actually, neither of these are like my favorite projects or anything like that. My favorite projects is the next one. But this, I, when Adam asked me to do this, I thought of the pinhole camera project because I just, in retrospect, I learned a lot by like failing and just trying new stuff the whole time. Just not really, uh, just moving forward and uh, and so this uh, was a piece of shit building. It was a diesel engine repair, uh, CMU block building, no windows, uh, no heating or cooling, just a, a, a double high space. 
and a startup microscope company uh, that was designing, fabricating, and testing these digital microscopes that allowed cancer doctors uh, to uh, study live cells. So we made, uh, we sourced and made the entire project out of materials that were within three miles of the site. And they were all things that had a previous life. We weren't buying stuff off the shelf at lumber stores and Home Depot and stuff like that. So we created a mezzanine out of pallet rack uprights that were at a Home Depot that went to eminent domain. Uh, we, we, Luckily, we, we lucked into the, Aval the Avalanche hockey uh, team, their rink, that glass, they have to retire every five years. We got a hold of all that glass. <laughs> all the, the structural uh, mezzanine decking is uh, uh, maple uh, railroad boxcar flooring that we use in a structural manner. So it's spanning 14 feet between these uh, pallet racks of no other structure, no, um, what else did we use here? Uh, but the main move we made was this building had these very large dock uh, bay doors, these 20 foot by 20 foot openings, or four of them on the north side of the building. And we knew that we were putting all their offices on the north side, double stacked, that's what that mezzanine structure is, and then all their making and sourcing and was happening on the floor in an open format. And so during the research of just understanding what these people do and what they're thinking about with their business, you know, I got to see what do these doctors actually look at with a microscope. And it's these little circles of different sizes and when they're alive, they're interacting and these doctors can put chemicals and watch how the cells respond to different treatments. That was just information that came out of research. It's not why we did this. Why we did this is we needed a thermal wall that was cheaper than glass, and I wanted to use something that was trash. My firm, we design build most of our projects. It allows us to do inventions like this. Most general contractors be like, no way. <laughs> or like, you know, because we, you can go to the next slide. You know, it was 30,000 of these bottles, so we had to like cut the ends off, take the labels off, clean them. And this is, well, first of all, pick them off the recycling line, where I had three people for three days, and we just like take the ones that are between certain diameters, and we wanted certain shapes, so we just grabbing and putting in bags. Um, you know, creating buildings and projects that have the lowest embodied energy to make and operate the project is at the core of all of our projects. Whether we're doing a 50 foot tall totem pole for the city of Denver, or we're making an all timber high rise uh, on the river in downtown Denver, or we're making an art museum in Wisconsin, or whether we're working for Burton all over the world, we're always going to that. And it was, it was something that I came to school believing in, and I got to experience experiment with it in school and then activate it once I started my business 22 years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I brought up both these projects, just this, you know, this master's for project really allowed me to test, play with, reconsider materials, how materials come together, you know, let the process drive the outcome. With good intentions and research, beauty will also arise. Don't worry about that. Don't try to make something fucking beautiful. That's like the biggest mistake. At least nowadays, I think we have a higher good here and it's to make, right now our buildings in America are using 50% of our fossil fuels. It's a fact, to operate them and to make them. So if we can like just alleviate that from the equation, we're 50% good. And then it's changing, it's changing uh, you know, personal routine and lifestyle. Nice. Clap, clap to that, yeah. So what was that, was that, that, that project, was that you bringing in, I mean, the, the project for the camera was brought in by the professor. I assume everyone is doing that. Were, were, was everybody reusing materials and things like that? Or is that something you brought in? Or did she kind of start, I brought in, still at, yeah. yeah. It was like a weird thing. We were like, 
Mm. <laughs> Why is my and it didn't work right? It was smell like, bad it all the caused time. a lot of problems. Doing huh, it too. Yeah. And that was a good lesson because like taking the labels off. Oh my god, <laughs> so we totally underestimated it. It was horrible. Right. Like what, what does that do to your design process in general where, you know, design is hard enough to think through what this thing should be. But if you don't know the sort of possibilities of materials yet, you know, until the hockey arena says, hey, we have some glass and somehow you hear about it. Like, yeah. What, what, what is what has that changed your design process, you think? Does it slow it down or are you just it starts with the function and then we find the material for it. Hmm. Great. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for for sharing here. So. Let's open it up uh, for some questions. Um, yeah. So I was just curious about like the timetable on this project and if like exactly how fast it was and if it was the fastest project you've ever completed. Talking to, to Mike Moore uh, about this uh, Rhino project, uh, if it's one, one of the fastest projects you've done or if it, yeah, what, what was kind of the timetable? For a building that size, yeah, it was super fast. Five months and fifty dollars a square foot, like, <laughs> all in, like everyone, design, and, uh, and we make money still. Yeah. yeah, we've always made money. Sometimes more than others, you know. But this was also one that, you know, this was actually an interesting time in my career because I started the firm in two thousand, just took on bigger and bigger projects, grew by a person a year. And then we had that recession, which in, in 08, 09, and kind of business like stopped. And I was a very small firm. I had one client, Burton Snowbirds, is working all over the world. And they were like, we're stopping. And, and this was like a comeback project. So it was like, uh, you know, and sometimes those projects, it's not so much about how much you make or whatever. It's like doing something improper and putting what you believe out there. Yeah. Uh, let's go right here. What was the most intensive, like, was this the most intensive reuse of material that you've done on a project? And if it wasn't, like, kind of, like, what was... No, what was my, we have, we have some projects, we have some projects that are way beyond this, where the whole structure is. We started with an existing structure, which is reclamation, but, like, we have somewhere we've made it all out of wood or metal from other sources that comes together. Including my house, which is made completely out of used plywood. Everything, the structure, the furniture. Yeah, in the back. This is a question for you, Michael. Uh, I was, you mentioned that you have a lot of uh, weak projects, and I was wondering which one you learned the most from and that you carried out. A lot of what project? Weak. You said you made mistakes before, and then it allowed you to create these foundation buildings. Did you say weak? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, so, so yeah, you've had a lot of weak projects, Mike. So tell us about that. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, just like where things like um, uh, like you fail or yeah. something. Yeah. Luckily, um, not on Trace Bird's architecture projects, but even on those projects, like we make mock-ups. Like we didn't just all of a sudden build those water bottle, you know, walls on site. We made multiple mock-ups really understood how we we're going to waterproof it. It wouldn't have worked on any other facade than north because it just doesn't get direct sunlight and that, that plastic would probably degrade fairly quickly. So like, it was very well researched before we put it out into the wild, but I'd say all of my schoolwork, there are parts of it where like didn't work at all, but certain parts that I went really deep on and, and you learn from the deeper you go. The more research, the more you keep going with an idea or concept. Yeah. Yeah, right there. Um, so, this is another question for Michael, sorry. Um, but I would imagine that you have, um, you don't have all the pieces come together like in your designs all at once um, because you're outsourcing a lot of the materials and you're finding them um, as the project, I would imagine, is sort of going on maybe. Uh, so how does, that, how does that look to like presenting your ideas to the client? Like, are you... Are you going to each one and being like, hey, like, this will save us money if we do this here, and like, I have this idea for this, and then make a mock-up and show them? Or are you kind of like, are they trusting you to do these things? Or like... Both. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So like, how, like, are you planning it a lot at first? Like, do you know all the pieces? Well, um, this is very intentional. I started the firm as a design-build firm. 
because I wanted to invent. So that allows us to do this. But what we've learned from it, it scales to larger projects where there's larger projects we do where we're just the architects and a large general contractor will build that. Or if we work out of state or out of country, others will build it. But because we've been practicing this way, we know very well how to speak to those general contractors and the tradespeople to get perhaps some invention created along the way. It's a dance. And it's not easy. Cool. We have a question. No more questions from not me. Not my question. <laughs> uh, yeah, being the last yeah. guy. You... I have a question for Tana. Um, having your background in interior design, how do you feel like that's helped you in the architecture too? I think it's made, I mean, that practical, that pragmatic really came from interior design. I don't know if that's why I was related to interior design more, but I feel like it's made me more successful in being able to just be really focused on what's the task at hand so that I can be efficient with that. Um, I think that there's some great benefits that came from the architecture in that way as well. Um, so I think it's a good mix of, of the two of those. It takes both of them, but I think it's really thinking about it in, um, in a practical way and really um, applying that in an artistic manner. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a question for Rebecca. So I'm just curious about the, the airport project. Mm -hmm. I know how much like a site and zoning can like impact the design decisions that you make. So I'm wondering like what the fact like that this is in like an airfield, what that did to the design process. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think airports are a very different typology because they don't have a lot of context yeah. for them. And so we did have to go and look outside of like a typical urban environment for context. Um, and that's where we were looking at the local vernacular and the local materials and also being able to complement the existing architecture. But airports are really unique that way because they're kind of like objects of themselves, but um, hopefully can still reflect their, their local context. Rebecca, I was just wondering about your experience in Mexico City, um, working with Tatiana, and what you learned from that and kind of pulled um, from that experience. Yeah, um, Tatiana was, she was an amazing architect and it was really fun. Mexico City is a very fun city to work in. Um, one thing I took from her office was her, uh, the way she did renderings was, she says she doesn't do renderings, they do collages. And we would be physically cutting stuff out of magazines and layering them on. And it was like such an analog way to do it from what we were trained to do. But it really made you look at things in different ways. And so that was like a really fun um, tool that I was able to take from her office and, and use in different ways. And um, just the representation of it in a different way creates this whole other result. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have a question for the other mic. Uh, um, so I really liked your um, school project. What, um, can you um, elaborate a little more about what's your design thinking process on the forms? Yeah, <laughs> and it is. So it's kind of funny having to having to go go back and and look for those those projects too because it was really before the computer. So I was. You know, having to go back actually look at photographing stuff or look at zip drives to kind of get on it. But um, the the drawing up in, in the middle of the screen there too. So that's a, a section going through. And the idea that these were ice shifts that were coming together and merging and drawing up towards towards the sky. And then the insertion of different kind of labs that were integrated between there. So you could travel the staircase up, have a more um, simple moment within the labs and then the different, you kind of see like the, the poles and those elements there. That was kind of the mending that was happening within that, within that project. So those things were actually helping to pull this, this, this piece together. So then on the, the images down on, on the bottom left, you can see how those shards coming up were kind of twisting and, and turning the, the, the lab forms. And then the, the small, the small images below too. So as we were working through building up kind of to the final project too, um, those were 
words that the instructor Mike had had given us too that you know one is about like ascension or something like that or um, connectivity so he just they're really kind of quick so next day you'll have have three of those and we just kind of work through just having trying to have a, a model that was a, evocative of a of an idea or a gesture Great. Uh, yeah there. Um, I have a question for Rebecca Architecture is a field where experience matters a lot. Was starting your own firm after graduation as rewarding as you hoped? And what would be your advice to someone who wants to work for themselves post-graduation? Don't do it. <laughs> um, Adam and I graduated in 2009. So it was the, the peak of the, I mean, the valley of the recession. And we got a really unique opportunity. One of Adam's uncles turned into a developer unexpected and gave us this opportunity. And so that's how it, it happened. And we um, learned so much through that process, um, but it was really hard. It was really challenging. And I think experience in many any different form benefits you, whether it's an architecture firm or a contractor or any related design field will give you a different perspective that strengthens your architecture when you bring it back. So. It doesn't, I don't think, if, if you don't have to be laser focused on running your own firm, I think the variety of experience will full circle benefit you no matter what. I mean, I think it is interesting because we have like different kind of levels of people starting their own firm or when they started it. Like Mike essentially started right out of, Michael started right out of school uh, and, and we did as well. And I think, you know, I think in a lot of ways it sort of set me back in my career of I haven't had much of like a true internship phase. I was always sort of like striving to be the boss, even if it was just, or the vice boss, that was the boss. But, um, you know, and so you just learn different things in different ways. And it's kind of about the path that you take. And um, um, especially like like Mike, I think who had a kind of clearer vision of what that firm might be that's unique from a different firm. Uh, you know, I think that can work or crash and burn sometimes, but. Or both, <laughs> or always. <laughs> B, yeah. Um, in terms of your creative process, post-grad time to now, would you say you've held on to a lot of the creative process structures um, that you learned at, about in grad school? Do you, have you held on to those, or have they completely changed and you've developed your own sort of process? And this is for any of you. Good question. Yeah, good point. Same and different. Uh, lot, lot, yeah, a lot of the same, just like have a process, just knowing to have a process. You don't just like show up and start doing something. You're like, what, what are, you know, what am I, what do you, what's trying to be achieved here? Do the research. Think about how, how can we solve multiple problems with, few solutions, right? Can we solve three things by doing one move? Because that's always going to be better than doing the three moves for lots of different reasons. Um, and then different in terms of, I've always done fine art since I was a little kid, and I used to just kind of show up and do. And I really switched, like once I started my business and I started having daughters and growing a family and a business, I had pretty restrained time when I could do my art, and so I started super planning it. So I, it would all be in my head. I'd figure all. I'd figure out what you know what the vision is, what the materials are going to be. Really, even the process, like wet and dry, and how I'm going to put this thing together, and really think it through. And then when I would do it, it would be really fast, and it would be re well, not necessarily super fast, but it'd be faster and there'd still be artistic practices where you have to interpret shit because things are changing because it's not going exactly how you thought it was going to go but you work with it and and now i finally like like my art or it's like my first 20 years i, I didn't like anything i made and like the last well maybe the first 30 years i didn't really like any of it in the last 20 now i'm like all right so you think you'll be in the artistic side of you back again back harder or back better mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it, I think it was by learning process with architecture school and having to make buildings where it's, you know, think the whole thing through. The build is like the easy part, should be the easy part, just thinking the whole thing through. 
do you still maintain almost like a small sketchbook where you still do art? Like say you're walking down the street yeah. and you yeah. like, oh. Yeah, especially like mountain biking or like hiking, that's when all the good ideas happen. Okay, sweet. Ask someone, not the phone, because then you'll be like, oh shit, my bills do. <laughs> I think the the thing for me that's maybe that's changed the most since school to like working professionally is just the amount of people that you collaborate with on any on any project. So not only just the ones the designers that you're working with internally, but you have clients and you know various uh, whether it's you're doing a design build or you're working with contractors and all those tradespersons, um, you're just getting just a fire hose of kind of different information and, and input with it and being able to kind of thoughtfully work through that and gain all the right information and 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 grab all that and try and complete it into something that's you know a, a coherent narrative and project I think is probably the biggest d diversion because school you're you know you know working with yourself or maybe in small teams but the amount of people that kind of go into any any structure is just immense and there's so many different kind of talents that are out there too and being able to kind of harness those those ones is actually really really fun yeah and i think trying new things and thinking outside of the box i think that's one thing i didn't question enough when i was younger is like just why not i always said why i was doing something and i think it's been fun just exploring new ways and thinking and not not putting on the real hat you know yet but just through other people, through the conversations, through consultants, like who you're working with, the energy flowing. I mean, we we just throw ideas out. There's no, it, you're a safe space. You're just throwing all ideas out. And, you know, it'll filter through and it'll it'll reveal itself what it needs to be because you know the, the challenge ahead of you, right? And we really do believe that it will speak to what the, what the solution is. But you got to just throw everything out, just kind of stupid ideas, crazy ideas, what if, and um, and then it just like filters through and it's a great process and it is the more people that you have. I mean, I think that's the one of the things about having a smaller firm that is hard for me. Owning your own firm right out of school is the energy that you get from others and working through something is something you you can't uh, you, you can't get anywhere else. You know, it's like we have a small firm and the different people that are participating differently. I mean, they're all bringing something new and something different, a new perspective. And you can't be afraid of that. You, you got to absorb that energy and kind of just like let it, let it go almost. So adding and, to the group adds creative confidence. Yeah, it does. And I mean, it's got to be a safe space. You know, you've got to respect each other. I think that's one of the things too, is like um, understanding that any idea can you know, when you look at a project that we've had, maybe we can't even tell whose idea it was because it's like you're growing off of each other. And that's where it's like really comes alive. And that's really when it's successful and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, right here. Um, this is kind of open to anyone, but um, you've all had very different experiences with uh, your education and getting to the point where you are um, and with all of us kind of continuing our education. Do you find there are any um, faults in the your education kind of areas where uh, maybe you would have liked to see something different taught or have learned something in school that you really had to discover on your own? Or um, did school, did your education really set you up um, to be where you are now? Maybe classes on business would be, would be helpful. Mm, true that. <laughs> but, you know, I think in, in school, both here and, you know, graduate school, I think what's really kind of cool is you're learning how to think creatively, you know, and I think however that process, you know, evolves over time, you know, that you're, you're dealing with that all the time. It's all creative problem solving and things kind of come up all the time and you're just looking for solutions and, and, and answers to those things. So when you're in the education port, like I'd hate to have that kind of, you know, become more dry on the business side, even though it's like immediately really, really valuable. But learning how to how to think creatively and, and innovatively, it's really fun. I think for me it was traveling abroad. So I did interior design, and then I did architecture studio, and then I did travel abroad, studied in Italy, and that right there set me up for the path. I think it gave me a confidence that I didn't have before. Um, I think it exposed me to brand new things. I, I can't imagine who I would be without that. 
And you got a husband out of it, right? I did. Yeah. <laughs> really set you up. Yeah. Yeah. I like the lame masses question like right after he took my class. <laughs> <laughs> um, how often in these designs do you guys have conflict with the engineers with all this stuff? Because with Rebecca, the, the ceilings in your space, that seems like you guys had to talk a lot about ways to, to yeah. design that. Yeah, it's all, I mean, it's all about the teamwork and the way you go into it. Um, but the engineers are your partners, and the more you can get that uh, going from the beginning, the, like, the stronger it's going to be. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of bringing in all consultants as early, early, early as possible to get that shared vision because it's really easy and it's and our and our system is set up to compartmentalize everything and everyone does their job and they're not thinking about the, the way these bigger systems go together. And so um, it's it's another creative challenge of working with engineers and like the way you can create and bring out um, alternate solutions and the way you collaborate with them is a design problem in itself. Um, but it's it's equally frustrating and really exciting at the same time, depending on, on the team. <laughs> yeah, and we, we hire all the engineers, right? So as the architecture firm, we're, we're like, we're the lead, right? That's what the architect is, you're the lead. We're hiring all these consultants, right? The structural engineer, mechanical, electrical, plumbing, but then there's like ecologists we might hire or art preservation specialists or solar specialists. Like we get to pick based on the project. I mean, we, we can't have all engineers because like get too expensive and our fee would get too big and no one would hire us. So we want to be like, what's the right, like what's the sweet spot of it? Um, but we get to pick all that as a, and that, and so they want, they, they want to be working like hand in hand with us. And what you said, like the earlier, the better, because that's how you really integrate knowledge. Like, like there's no use coming up with a great idea and then trying to prove it to all the engineers, right? It's like, all right, this is what we're dealing with. Here's the starting point. Here's our objectives. And then having that dialogue and letting their intelligence like work in. And as the architect, you're taking all this information and simplifying it into a form and into a gesture, into a space. That's, so it's, the engineers are awesome. And, that, and I feel very lucky that we've gotten to now, like over time, hire better and better engineers. Um, and it's awesome. <laughs> we have a we have a fun project that we're just starting right now. It's a virtual museum, so that, so now we don't have to worry about engineers. <laughs> oh yeah! Just before we close things up, I just have a question for each of you in just a couple of words. What is your favorite part about being an architect? Mm. Uh, yeah, down okay. the line. Yeah. Um, at the the people and like seeing a difference in people. It sounds so cheesy when you say it out loud, but seeing a difference in people's lives when you work through them with them through a project and um, when you have, and Tana was talking about trust with colleagues and the, the solutions that come out of that trust and like uh, that are unexpected and really, really exciting. It's, it's really fun. I love, I love being an architect. Yeah. I, I like having the ability to work on something that's that's tangible and built, mm -hmm. you know, and then it ideally has a life longer than than ourselves and contributing to the community that way. Mm, that's good. Um, I would say that um, the projects don't always, they don't represent me. And so it's really wonderful when you have all different types of clients and all different projects and um, and your client sees themselves. And I think that's when you can know you've been successful. It's like it wasn't about me. It's about them. Uh, just making the world a better place <clears throat> and participating in that actively, not wishing it was better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, great. I think that's a good spot to end on. So thank you guys. Thanks for hosting us. Thanks for, for being here on a Monday night. Uh, and yeah, thanks for the good, the thoughtful questions as well. So. Thanks, guys.
You can visit architecting.com, that's architect-ing.com, to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. Hi, I'm Eli. This show is made by my mom and dad and these people. Heidi Mendoza. Aaron Best. Kyle Burner. Emily Child. Trevor Notzko. Zach Huff. Rob Cleary. All right, let's get a coffee. See ya. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.